Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. This is Reality Check Radio on a Monday afternoon. And with law and order and crime now emerging as a major issue in this year's election, I'm joined by the National Party spokesman on police and on corrections and a former policeman himself, Mark Mitchell. Mark, thanks for joining us here. Uh, according to the Ipsos Issues Monitor, uh, crime and law and order has now raced up to number two on the list of things that matter most to New Zealanders just behind the cost of living. What does that sudden rise up the ranking tell you about New Zealand society in 2023? Well, I think most communities now, regardless of where you go in the country, um, don't feel as safe um, as they did four or five years ago. And I think if you look at the Ipsos report, you'll see that law and order has been steadily on the rise. Um, started at number five, four, three, and now it's, now it's at number two, which is extraordinary when you consider that uh, most people are under enormous economic pressure at the moment with uh, interest rates going up with the cost of living crisis. But, um, you know, crime and and, um, and public safety is a huge issue. I'm doing public meetings all around the country, and they are standing room only. Um, I did one in Richmond between uh, Mochabaker and, and Nelson on Friday night, and literally um, there were people out the doorway standing outside. They are deeply concerned about what's happening in their communities at the moment. So it's even in the smaller provincial country towns. It's not just in the big cities, not just in Auckland and Wellington and Christchurch. No, I mean you see a lot of the reporting um, on the you know the high-profile ram raids and firearms incidents in Auckland, the Waikato, and Bay of Plenty, but it's not contained to those main centres. It's definitely throughout the whole country. I mean Christchurch has got a massive issue down there with um, you know with retail crime and violent crime. Does the country have enough police, Mark? And if not, how many more do we need? So at the moment, they'd always the police service is a service that would always like more numbers. There's no doubt about that, and numbers matter. But the reality of it is, is that is the demand side, the demand side, their time has grown so much over the four or five, uh, the last four or five years um, that they are stretched to breaking point. You've had a 33% increase in violent crime. You've had an over 500% increase in, in ram raids and aggravated robberies. Um, a 60% increase in mental health call-outs, an enormous increase in family harm and domestic violence um, call-outs. And it's put so much pressure on them that they have to prioritise. And now where members of the public are putting their hand up for help, they're often not able to respond or give the response that the public deserve um, and, and should be getting. So I'm a huge supporter. and I've, I had a policing career myself, and I'm a, I'm a huge supporter of our front line. Um, but they are under enormous pressure, and it means that they're not able to respond to those calls for help when they come. Are they doing work that they're actually not trained for a lot of the time? Well, you know, I'm glad you raised that. That's a very good point. So uh, mental health call-outs, that's not a core role for our police. That requires a health response and, and, a, uh, and a medical professional that knows how to deal with with mental health issues. But uh, because our police are the only 24-7 social service that we have in New Zealand, they're often left having to deal with, um, you know, complex mental health issues that takes them takes them away from their core role um, and ties them up with that. And like I said, there's been a there's been a sixty percent increase in mental health callouts for our frontline police officers. So, how how do you react to that incident in Christchurch the other week, where a criminal, a thief, was caught in the act, yeah. citizens arrest made, tackled to the ground, held on the ground, police called, police said, let him go. I mean, the country was frankly up in arms about that, and deservedly so. How can the police retain some credibility when they show that kind of attitude? Well, there should have been a police response, without a doubt. That was a complete failure. 
Um, and I'm sorry, I just don't expect that there wasn't a sworn police officer somewhere around the Christchurch station or in the area that, that could have responded and assisted those um, good Samaritans that had stepped forward um, and taken some action. So that, that really, in my view, sort of typifies exactly where we are as a country at the moment, that um, you know, you, you had people step forward. They catch, they caught an offender by his own admission and recently come out of prison, obviously had a propensity for, for violence. Um, they held him there, and then, of course, the police said, number one, we can't respond, number two, let him go. And, um, you know, there would have been some definitely some please explains coming if, if that offender had gone and assaulted or injured or hurt uh, another member of the public after having been released. So that was a failure. The police should have responded to that. I asked the police minister in the House the day after if the, uh, whether or not um, she had been in contact with the police commissioner for a please explain, because certainly that's the first thing that I would have been doing. Um, and they hadn't, and it's just symptomatic of a government that hasn't got their eye on the ball. You've, you've had four police ministers in the last four years, Peter, um, and one of the most um, current, currently one of the most important portfolios. So how politicised is the police service then, and is, is Andrew Costa, as commissioner, truly independent, do you think? Yeah, I've got my own thoughts on that. I mean, it's important that we continue to um, express confidence in the office of the commissioner, but um, I've been very clear about the fact that I think that he's completely taken our frontline police down the wrong track. Um, there's many of them that don't feel supported. Uh, I'm really disappointed with the leadership that's coming out of PNHQ. And, of course, they, have, um, they haven't had strong political leadership either when you, have, when you cycle through a um, police minister every few months. Um, and it's, it's important the frontline deserve to feel like someone's got their back and that they, they can go out and take on what's a very difficult job at the moment. So if National come to power or National lead the next government, Costa's term can't have that much longer to go. I presume he was appointed for five years by Adern Sud after she became Prime Minister. So would you see him being reappointed or not? Well, I mean, I get this question all the time. I can't comment on that. Um, there are you know, there's there's, um, there's processes and things like that. I can't comment on that. All I'd say is this: is that we're going to be very clear about what we want to um, what we want to achieve, and um, and the commissioner is going to have to be able to demonstrate and show us that through his operational independence, which is very important, that he's going to be able to achieve that. How much grumbling is there on the front line about the commissioner? Do you think? It's tough for the for our frontline police officers. They they join the police because they want to protect and serve their communities. And it's very demotivating and demoralising when they're catching offenders on a Friday night and they're back out reoffending the next day. Uh, when they see that the actual justice system is not supporting them in terms of proper sentences and consequences for the offenders that they're actually going out there and, and, um, and apprehending. So, you know, it's, it has been tough for them. I mean, they've just started to make changes to the pursuit policy, but you've got to remember there's been a huge increase in failing to stop the police. Um, and very, very few um, actual convictions for those failing to stop, I think about 14%. So it, it has been, it's been tough and frustrating for them, but on top of that, they're having to deal with more violent offenders and offenders um, carrying firearms and more likely to use them. All right, we'll come back and talk about the justice system in a, in a moment, but I saw some statistics yesterday about gangs. 
uh, there's been, as you know, an 80% increase in their number since 2017, the year that Labor became the government. Uh, there's just under 9,000 on the national gang list now. Uh, but the time police spend on gangs is surely way out of proportion. This uh, Operation Cobalt has resulted in, what, 49,000 infringement notices, 38,000 charges laid in the 12 months up until the middle of May, let alone the, what, 1,800 searches with or without a warrant and 400 firearms seized. Now, those numbers suggest an awful lot of police time taken up for just 9,000 gang members, which is, what, about 0.2% of the adult population. How do you tackle gang crime to try and get police onto general community policing and away from these guys? So, look, it's a really good question. You've, you've summed it up really well there, Peter. Look, the reality of it is it's like anything in life. When you let a problem, when you're aware of a problem that you let it get so big that then it becomes much harder to get on top of, then it needs more resource, need more effort, and it takes much longer to do. That's a general rule in anything that we apply to life. And this is what's happened with the gang problem in New Zealand, is that you've had a, a soft-on-crime Labor government that has completely taken their eye off the ball. In fact, I wouldn't even give them that much credit. They have willfully ignored the issues that were starting to grow in front of them because they're rolling out their own pretty perverse ideology in terms of how they approach our criminal justice system. And it's left the police in a situation now where they're trying to get on top um, of a very, very difficult um, you know, situation with with the growth in violent gangs around the country. And although, yes, you're right, there's only about 9,000 on the actual gang list, there's thousands more that are associates and, and working with and dealing with the gangs uh, throughout New Zealand. I saw a, a Twitter feed of yours about this guy, Harry Tam, a notorious mongrel yep. mob member. Is the government sucked in by his so-called good work? Oh, of course they are. I mean, they, he works very closely with the government. And, um, and look, that he was part of the uh, mongrel mob branch in the Hawke's Bay that received $2.7 million in government funding. Um, hasn't been able to put any you know, put up any data in terms of what was actually done or achieved with that money. And if, and he was at the last election, he was out rallying the mongrel mob members to support Labor uh, because they know that life will become a lot more difficult under national. And, excuse me, they're doing exactly the same thing this year. In fact, he's he's doing a roadshow around the country, running who he's getting organised so that um, so that the mongrel mob members are supporting either Labor or um, the Greens um, and coming out firmly against the National Party. I mean, the reason why they're doing that is because they know we're serious and they know that life for gang members is going to get much tougher under a national government. I see that the National Party policy is to ban gang patches in public. Can you legally do that? Surely there'd be pushback in the courts about what people can wear where they want to be, don't they? Yep. Wouldn't they? Yes, no, we can legally do that. I mean, of course, you're always going to get the hangrangers that come out and, um, and complain, jump up and down about it. But I actually passed a bill about seven or eight years ago through our parliament that banned gang patches in schools, hospitals and public buildings. It's been very successful. The police have used it. It's been a great tool for them. So we're extending that. We're going to say that we'll ban gang patches in, in public places. They just can't wear them. The only reason why they wear them is to intimidate and frighten the communities that they're in. And by the way, to, to wear a gang patch, they have to have shown that they've got a propensity to commit violent crime. So we, we're going to get rid of them. They're gone. Uh, we've said that we'll make being a member of a gang an aggravating factor uh, when it comes to um, sentencing. And we've also said that we'd pass some very tough legislation that gives the police um, 
the ability to break the gangs up from the inside out with non-consorting orders. What about gangs inside prisons? Because the statistics that I've seen, again, through some investigation by uh, the blogger and lawyer, Thomas Cranmer, something like 40% of the prison population are gang members, aren't they? Yeah, correct. And look, uh, so I have the corrections portfolio. I recently met with our um, Corrections Association of New Zealand at their conference in Auckland. In fact, it was last Monday. They've got some very good, clear ideas in terms of how to continue to manage the gang population uh, in New Zealand. I'm very open to that because it's not working very well at the moment. Yeah, because prison, it would seem, does not actually work to change offenders' behaviour, does it? So if it doesn't, how do we punish those who commit crime? So, well, number one, prisons are a punishment. They, 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 it's, uh, they've been established for society to say, if you break laws and if you hurt people, uh, and create victims, then there's consequences for that, and sometimes the consequences go to prison. While they're there, there should be a sharp focus on rehabilitation. And we've just passed uh, one of our policy announcements last weekend was to make sure that all prisoners on remand get the full range of rehabilitation programs because at the moment they don't. And um, and we have this perverse situation where 45 percent of our current prison must uh, remand prisoners, prisoners waiting to actually go to court and have, the, have their case heard, and 20% of those end up actually serving their entire sentence on remand. So currently they don't get the full range of rehabilitation programs. We would change that and make sure that they do. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, Peter, you will you will rehabilitate a person. You will allow them to come out and rejoin society making good decisions, but only if they want to be rehabilitated, only if they want to change. And how are you ever going to do that when their life is based around the gang and they get their their friendship, their kinship through being a member of a gang, a criminal a criminal organisation? Yeah, and look, that's a tough one, and there's that's, there's no easy answers for that. Um, look, getting a bit philosophical about it, it's about social investment and making investment into people's lives much earlier. It's about working as a community along with government. Governments aren't that great; they're a bit of a blood tool and trying to sort of stop that and get into that intergenerational gang membership. Um, but that's where the real work lies in terms of trying to stop and, and reduce that pipeline of people coming into our criminal justice system. That's an all-of-community um, approach that we have got a very big role uh, in playing, playing in that as well um, to try and sort of get them out of the gangs. But, um, look, my, my approach is quite simply this with a police portfolio. I have to deal with the hard violent, crunchy stuff that's right in front of us right now. But sitting right alongside of that is the social investment approach where if a gang member came to me tomorrow and said, I want to leave the gang, especially one that's got a family, then I'd do everything that I can to get alongside them and help them leave the gang and rejoin society in a positive way. But in the meantime, you and the National Party are happy for the prison population to increase from what's it's, I think the current muster is just under 8,000 with uh, government policy, current government policy. You'd be happy for it to go back up to where it used to be, above 10,000? Yes, we are, because we prioritise public safety and stopping the creation of more victims. Judges are supposed to be independent do you believe they are, or are they more lenient uh, with their sentences now as a result of what you might call their more liberal and, and kinder outlook on life? Yeah. No, I do think that they're. In, I do think that they are um, independent. I, and listen, the judiciary—it's very important the way that our governance is set up in this country. 
that our judiciary remain retain their independence. But um, what we think has gone wrong is that the sentencing laws currently allow for big discounts. So, um, you know, an offender might come in front of the court and be discount, the sentence will be discounted down with the use of uh, an early guilty plea or cooperation with police or remorse or a cultural report. And we've put a cap on those discounts um, because we feel that uh, a lot of those discounts are sort of taking them down below the two-year threshold and then they're going out on electronic bail uh, and home detention. And we've seen just the, you know, what I think is a perverse outcome with these Black Power members um, down in uh, New Plymouth, where because a, a, a man that was suffering from mental health issues, living with his parents, uh, wasn't associated or affiliated or a gang member at all, was going down to a local McDonald's daily to, to get a meal, and all the staff there knew him. Um, and he had a carload of Black Power members drive past him, sort of abusing him and and um, and making signals to him out of the window. He innocently, innocently waved at them. He couldn't hear what they were saying. He thought they were sort of greeting him. He walked into the McDonald's, and then you had a pile, eight, nine, ten brave Black Power members all pile in there, assault him, stab him, um, you know, assault him with a weapon. And, um, and half of them end up with uh, home detention. That was a premeditated assault that could have killed him. Imagine the trauma that was created to those young McDonald's workers, workers that actually had to witness that. So we've quite simply said that the judges now have got a cap. They can only discount down to 40%. They still retain um, you know, the, the, the discretion and, and, um, and the independence to be able to make those decisions themselves. But we've put a cap on it and said that 40%, 40% is enough. You don't think that uh, saying that 40% uh, figure to the judges, you don't believe that is judicial interference or inter- interference in the judiciary's activities? No, not at all. Not, 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 not at all. I was elected um, as a lawmaker by my community to go down to Parliament and represent them. And, um, and, and we, as lawmakers, we pass the laws. It's up to the judges then to apply them. The but, judges don't make the laws. We, the, the, the lawmakers and the MPs and the representatives, the people's representatives do that. The National Party also says it's going to cut the funding for cultural reports. Are you still happy for the cultural reports to be presented in court at the time of sentencing as long as the taxpayer doesn't pay? Yeah, we still want people to have the ability to present a cultural report, but we want it to be done in the way that it was intended, and that was someone that personally knows the offender, and they can make a verbal cultural report in the court to the, directly to the judge. What's happened is that you've had this... Um, You've had this cottage industry um, spring up in form where you've got the likes of Harry Tam, a senior uh, mongrel mob gang member, advertising on, on his website saying, you know, come to me, I'll, I'll do a cultural report for you, a long written report that costs three, about, up to about $3,000 a pop, um, and I'll, I can get you up to a 35% discount on your sentence. I mean, that's not what it was intended for. And by the way, $20 million of taxpayers' money has gone into those reports. So what we've said is that the taxpayer's not going to fund them anymore. They can still do them, but um, they, they can go back to doing what the, the original intent was. And we're going to take that $20 million and we're actually going to give it to victim advocacy groups and allow the victims to have access to that uh, funding. Why do you think there's so much community pushback, or should I say media pushback, against these ideas, which on the surface seem very reasonable ones? Oh, the the media will, you know, they, they enjoy taking a stand against us. I mean, at the end of the day, it is what it is. We just have to, um, we believe in what we're doing. Uh, we believe that we've got very strong uh, policies that are going to make the country safer. And, um, and in many ways, Peter, honestly, we have to try and talk past the media and and, um, and talk to the people that we're representing. 
um, and that we want to represent as, a, as an incoming government at the end of this year. So how frustrated do you get by some of the sentences you see handed down? I'm thinking about the home detention for, for violent crime, for assaults, for rape and the like. And yet the Kim.com associates go to jail for copyright infringement where nobody's hurt. I mean, I'm sorry, I just don't get that kind of, <laughs> of, of justice system whereby what is essentially a victimless, nonviolent crime, you go behind bars, but you beat somebody up, uh, beat somebody up and you get to stay at home. Yeah, look, look, look. There's the one thing I would disagree on. There's always a victim, regardless of what type of crime it is. But I do agree with you that in terms of using our prisons, we should be focused on violent offending, um, where members of the public are actually at risk of being physically hurt, injured, or killed, um, and and that should be the primary focus, in, in my view, uh, when it comes to sentencing and the use of our prisons. Um, uh, dishonesty crime. There's still victims, but. Um, but, you know, there's obviously a different type of impact. Sometimes, you know, sometimes though it can be just as serious. I mean, the mental health and anxiety that can be created in a person that loses their um, entire life savings uh, through someone that's committed some type of fraud uh, or embezzlement can be just as serious. But fundamentally, I do agree with you that the, that's often in the public now we're seeing sentences that uh, and members of the public look at it and go, hang on a second, um, that doesn't match the, serious, the seriousness of the offending that we've seen. And actually, it's just human nature. You've got to have consequences. Um, you know, consequences are a big part of um, uh, you know of prevention. And by the way, one of the biggest deterrents is the fear of being caught. Um, at the moment in New Zealand, um, there's not a high level of fear of actually being caught for the offending that you've committed. I know this goes a little bit outside the parameters of your portfolios, but something that really grinds my gear in the justice system in this country at the moment is name suppression and the use of name suppression. It seems to me that we really have uh, double standards here, don't we? I mean, James Wallace has just been outed after fighting it for five years. There was a guy in Wellington yeah. the other day who had 900 images of young children on his devices. He gets permanent yeah. name suppression, yet... If you're a member of a gang, if you're involved in petty crime, you don't get name suppression. Do you think there is something inherently wrong with a system like that? Look, I, I think that those laws do have to be looked at. That, that is in Paul um, Goldsmith's sort of portfolio. He's he's just a spokesperson, but I do agree with you that we need to have a close look at, um, at the use of those name suppression rules. Because the other thing too, of course, is that when the media report that there's a high-profile New Zealand sports person that's been investigated for um, domestic violence or um, or sexual assault, um, and they have name suppression and they name the area they're from, then of course every um, high-profile New Zealand sportsman's living in that area, um, you know, immediately sort of unintentionally gets captured. So I just I, I do think that we need to have a close look at. Um, at, uh, at the name suppression laws. But like I said, that is Paul Goldsmith's area. Yeah, absolutely understood. So back to the, the matters of, of crime and law and order, how far beyond the actual criminals does this issue go? Don't we just have multifaceted problems in our communities which inevitably lead to crime, the primary ones being poverty, housing, the breakup of the family unit, and in many instances, uh, just poor parenting, which allows young people to get into a life of crime at a very early age. Yeah, and all of those are factors, without a doubt, in terms of determining 
you know, young person's view of the world and um, whether or not some, a lot of them, sadly, especially those inter- intergenerational gang families, um, are almost born into an environment where it's a, a preordained outcome that they'll probably end up coming into the criminal justice system. And, and that's the social investment model, trying to invest and get into their lives much earlier and try and change that um, pathway that they're on. But um, fundamentally, I think what's driving a lot of the crime that we've seen um, in the country at the moment is you had a, a Labor government come in five years ago and their priorities were quite simply to repeal the three strikes legislation, which was the only tough piece of sentencing law that we had on our books, and empty the prison muster by 30%. Um, and, you know, you put those things, two things together and it, and it encapsulates very well the, um, the approach that the Labor Party were taking to public safety. And we've ended up with this awful situation with all the stats heading in the wrong direction. So is National going to bring three strikes back? Yes, we are. That'll be a, one of the things that we do in our first 100 days is um, is reinstate the three strikes legislation. It was When you actually look at the numbers, Peter, um, you, you had 10,000 offenders on a first strike. You had about uh, a bit over 700 on a second strike. You had 32 on a third strike. So if you look at the numbers... It was actually working as a deterrent. They didn't want a second strike. They definitely didn't want a third strike. But the judges didn't like it, did they? The judges didn't like it because it removed some of their discretion, and judges are very sensitive around that. Um, and that was uh, that's the reason why they didn't like it. During the debate in the House on this, I sat on the select committee um, that examined that bill. They could the, the government could not put up any data or any strong argument as to why they were repealing the three strikes legislation, other than the fact the judges did not like having that um, discretion removed. So if you get into government, do you really believe that you can make a difference on this issue quickly, like within within the first 12 months of a, of a national-led government? Because it seems that we've gone so far down a hole that there's an awfully long way back to the top. So you're absolutely right. You're 100% right. There is a long way back, but we have to start. And um, look, I'm deeply proud. I got into politics because I love my country, as you do. We love our country. We're proud of our country, but we are slipping back. Our, our, the way that we're viewed internationally at the moment is not the same. Um, and I just experienced that myself with my overseas trip. Um, I was deeply embarrassed to be um, with a big group of friends who love New Zealand and admire New Zealand and, and admire Kiwis, and they're sitting there watching um, the gangs take over a town in New Zealand where the kids can't go to school, um, and, and effectively the whole place locks down. So we have to start somewhere. Um, I'm an optimist. I know how tough the job is going to be, um, but I do believe that we can start. And I, and I do understand, too, that the country is going to want to see results from us, not after three years, but in that first 12 months. I think the political landscape has changed. Getting around and doing public meetings, um, I definitely feel like there is a, a groundswell and a mood for change, um, but we're going to be held to account, and we should be, in terms of being able to be seen to make a big difference um, fairly early on in, in that uh, first term of government. So what are the targets that you'd be aiming for? Because you go on about targets in health and education, surely in crime and law and order uh, matters. You've got to set targets as well, don't you? So we will we will set some targets because we believe in those. We believe that... Um, you know, you should be measured by those. That's how you um, that's how you measure your progress and your success. Um, we won't be putting targets in place until we, if we're successful in winning the government this year and we actually get the books open and we start to look and, and see what can be achieved, what resources we have, where the waste is, how we can refocus that. Um, and as part of an incoming government, we will be setting targets for ourselves and we'll be very public about those. 
What about the gun register? Is that worth pers- persevering with? So the gun register, register is necessary in the sense that um, uh, up to 80% of um, illegal firearms that are getting into the hands of gang members and organised crime are coming through what's called straw man sales. And that's um, licensed um, That's you know licensed firearms users going into a gun store, buying guns on order, and then selling them on to unlicensed um, people in, in the gang. So the only way to really get on top of that is to register the firearm so you can audit it, you can turn up and say, right, you've bought 40 firearms this year, where are they? And um, if they can't present them um, and the reg- registration numbers don't match, then um, there's going to be some big trouble. Uh, for that person. So the only way to get on top of that is to register. Uh, make no mistake, we're a huge supporter of our gun and hunting community, and we think that they have been unfairly targeted. Um, but uh, in terms of public safety, uh, we are supporting this register because um, we feel strongly that it's the, the best tool that the police have got and that we've got to be able to stop that straw man sales, stop that flow of firearms into gangs' hands, and also... It's, uh, so not only does it make the police safer, it makes the public safer. It also gives the police more information about when they're attending incidents, exactly where um, uh, those firearms might be and, and who might have access to them. I read that there has been quite a lot of success recently in terms of convictions about drug dealing. Do you believe that police are making real progress on this front? No, they're fighting a um, oh, look. It's a, there's a, we don't talk about drugs in this country at the moment much, which is um, you know I don't know why, but maybe because um, retail violent retail crime and everything is just so prominent. But we ha- we have still got a huge drug problem in this country that's growing. Um, I attended a conference with some drug detectives from the um, uh, from the states about uh, two months ago. And their big fear is that um, fentanyl is going to find its way, its way onto our shores because fentanyl kills. Um, there's not much leeway there. You, you take a you, even small overdose of fentanyl and you, you're probably not going to survive it. Um, so we still have a big methamphetamine problem in New Zealand that's largely been driven and controlled by the gangs. Um, and so I think if you break up and start to suppress and put enormous pressure on the gangs, then you're going to start to put enormous pressure on that pipeline of methamphetamine coming into the country as well. So it's a double-edged sword. You, you you get to the heart of the gang issue and you believe that uh, the drug supply, if not dries up, is yeah, certainly curtailed big time. Yes, yeah, the drug supply, the um, laundering of money, the standover tactics, the intimidation, um, the, the um, trade in stolen goods, uh, you'll just start to disrupt and have an impact on all of that type of um, you know, crime. All right. Well, it seems as if the, the election campaign really uh, is underway, even if it's unofficial at this stage uh, in early July, Mark. You've got <laughs> yeah. a couple of weeks uh, recess during the school holidays. So I take it that this this is a really big thing when you go to your public meetings in various places around the country supporting various candidates. Yeah, look, it's seven days a week for us now. Um, and, uh, and we're just going to keep working now right through the election. We just feel like we can't leave anything on the table that this, this election is one of the most important for, ones for us, um, certainly in our recent history. And um, and we have to give it everything we've got. Um, so, you know, there is no – on recesses, I've, I've just worked um, – I'm, I'm just working straight through. There are no days off now. Um, we are, I'm all over the country doing public meetings. Um, Chris Luxon is the same. Um, Erica Stanford with education. Um, Nicola Willis with finance. Chris Bishop with housing. Um, you, you're just going to, Simeon Brown with transport, you're just going to see us all over the country. 
uh, campaigning now. Very good. Great talking with you, Mark. Uh, best wishes for hey, the thanks, Peter. hard work ahead, and uh, we'll see what happens on the 14th of October. Eh? We'd certainly like to see a turnaround in some of those numbers we, uh, we hear pretty much every day. Thanks, Peter. Th- and th- thank you very much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even better, if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now.